Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of Jude. It's verses 3 through 10. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet, in like manner, these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I asked in the first service, anybody hear like the hints of stranger things at the end of that, that audio loop? You heard it, right? I heard it. Thank you for affirming. Yeah. You hear it now. Thanks, Luke. See, he was here in the first, now that your eyes have been opened, your ears have been opened. Good. Um, hey, if you're on Pillar's email list, you, you would have received an email on Friday, although 60% of those go to spam folders, we know that. So for the 40% of you that received it, and the 10% of it who read it, this will not be news to you. Uh, we're in Jude, that's the book we're exploring right now. The passage of Jude that we'll look at today deals specifically with human sexuality. So the email, the heads up to parents to say, hey, look, we... We understand we have young years present with us when we gather. We respect that. We welcome it. We want families to worship together. Um, we want kids present with us. The summer was absolutely beautiful, and we had all the elementary kids over here. Loved it. Um, so when I preach this morning, it will be with an awareness that we have young years present. However, we also have a deep conviction, desire to preach through passages, especially very important passages like this one, in real and relevant ways. So I, I will be... Uh, appropriately pointed. I may use some vocabulary that you might not use regularly with your uh, children. You might just hear the word sex and sexuality said way more than you want it to be said this morning, but uh, we just want to be faithful to the passage and preach in a way that is uh, real and relevant. Our elementary class next door goes up to fifth grade. Um, I'm going to pray. Uh, I'll linger in my prayer, so if you need to shuffle as a family, probably not too late to catch Koza's third service for the day. They're just 10 minutes up the road. So you have options, okay? Don't say I didn't give you options. Um, but I'm going to pray, and then we'll get right down to work, okay? Father, thank you for allowing us to gather this morning. We talked last week about how there's kind of a strangeness in Jude. Um, 
and we'll see some of that strangeness today, but um, there's also some straightforwardness, and so maybe what we'll see this morning will be, uh, it's not going to be unclear, it may be controversial, but not because it's unclear, but just because it's such a countercultural take on human sexuality. And uh, Father, help us to hear these words from you this morning and receive them as your words and to receive them with humility. Please help us to listen to the sermon, not for somebody else, like, oh, wow, this is really what somebody else or some other people group needs to hear, but help us to receive the word as you, as our Father, talking to each one of us as your sons and daughters this morning, to internalize it, to receive it with humility, and um, to find life as we respond to your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Guys, can you start that timer for me? Otherwise, we'll be here all day. There it is. Thanks. I already got bonus five minutes because you're supposed to start it when I start all that. So we got a free five minutes today. <clears throat> Let me just open to Jude. My bookmark fell out. And it's a single page, so don't judge. There it is. There's Jude. All right, so we're in Jude. Our theme all along will be forever kept. We'll see how that's relevant for our topic this morning here. Here in a few moments, here's our big idea right up front for the passage that we'll explore. Uh, it's a little long today, so I broke it into two parts. Here's the first half of the big idea. As an act of grace, grace as a word means a gift. So as a gift, right, out of kindness and for my good, God places limits on my sexuality. That would include sexual identity and sexual expression. As an act of grace, a gift for my good, God places limits on my sexuality. Second part would go like this. When Jesus is my king, I learn to see these limits as liberating, life-giving even, and I work to joyfully submit. I, I, want, I tweaked that second sentence a couple times this week uh, because I think it really does need nuance. Obviously, if Jesus is not our king... Um, we would not view the idea of a God with limits on our sexuality as a good thing or even necessarily life-giving. We would feel like something was being withheld from us. Um, but I think maybe the most important nuance is in that final line. Um, there are probably a lot of days that you may submit but not joyfully, right? Um, submission for most of us is very often imperfect, but I think the most important word in that sentence is work does not come naturally. It's not easy. Submission, particularly joyful submission in the area of our sexuality, for most of us, if we're, willing, if we're willing to be honest, is straight up work, right? Real work. So as an act of grace, a gift for my good, God places limits on my sexuality. When Jesus is my king, I learn to see these limits as liberating, life-giving, and I work to joyfully submit. If you like outlines, uh, here's a much shorter and more condensed approach to the passage, just four words, well, and a few bonus words. Um, here, here's how the passage is kind of structured. There's some trouble around this idea, so Jude is writing to address the trouble, not in one church. Remember, this is what they call a general epistle, so he's writing to uh, churches in a region. This was a widespread regional, you could say cultural issue, which is good. Look, nothing changes in 2,000 years, Okay. We need this letter just as much as they needed it 2,000 years ago. So he's going to show us what the trouble is. We'll look at that very briefly just to get a sense of what's going on. And then Jude points to three types that they would have been familiar with from Old Testament history. 
three types of people or peoples um, that more or less embodied with their lives exactly what these troublemakers are teaching now as it relates to sexuality. And so Jude wants to show us what was going on in their hearts, the decisions that they made, and the outcomes of the choices they made so that we will understand if we embrace the same, the same idea, uh, we can diagnose our own hearts and we can understand what will be the outcomes, right? So trouble types, three of those. And then truth. This all boils down to our relationship with truth, which is also relevant for our culture. Who owns truth? Who establishes truth? Who is the final authority of truth? Uh, is God true? Does he make truth? As a person, are you free to make your own truth? What's true for me is true for me, but not necessarily true for you. Like our cult, we've got a really complicated relationship with truth, a lot of confusion. And honestly, not only is that the, at the heart of pretty much every conversation surrounding sexuality and sexual identity, um, it was at the heart of the conversation then, okay? It's nothing is new. And then time, that's kind of my bonus word. It's not part of the outline in the text, but what I want to do is take everything that we see, work hard to bring it into real time so that we can sit with it, wrestle with it a little bit, um, let it do its work for each of us internally, and then respond appropriately. Sound good? We're all tracking so far. Let's start out with the trouble in Jude uh, by looking at verse 4. Jude writes, hey, look, guys, you all know this, certain people, doesn't name them, doesn't give a lot of detail. They've crept in. In is an important word that helps us understand Jude is not calling us to contend, in this case, with people outside of the church or outside of Christianity. He's talking very specifically about people who are in, insiders. Um, the word creep or crept makes it sound like from the beginning they had some ulterior motives. We just don't know, but that's how Jude chooses to describe it. But they're in. That's the bottom line. They're insiders. They're members. They're members of Pillar Church. They show up. They sing all the same songs we do. We affirm the sermons. We share communion together. But they're offering a profoundly different view of human sexuality and human sexual identity. I'll show you that right here. Uh, certain people have crept in unnoticed, uh, who long ago were designated for this condemnation. We'll see the condemnation here in a few moments. In other words, what he's saying is what they're teaching may sound appealing or attractive, but uh, it's a poison. If you drink it, you die, right? It's condemning. Uh, they're ungodly people. That's another important word. Won't linger here for long, but we can think of godliness as a reflection of God's character, Right, So ungodliness would be the absence of that reflection. Right, God is just, so godliness would be living a just life. Ungodliness would be an unjust life and not caring about justice. God is merciful, so a godly life would be a life that is saturated with mercy. An ungodly life would be one who is a life that knows nothing of mercy, right? But in, in, there's, a, there's an important, there are two elements, two important elements to godliness, ungodliness. Um, and let me just give you two words, orthodoxy and orthopraxy. So orthodoxy would be right belief and orthopraxy, praxis, right? That would be right practice. Uh, Jude's getting at a very important point because for the most part, these people have the orthodoxy thing downright. Like they, they share all of the same beliefs. They're part of the community. They're affirming these things. But while their lips confess a love for Jesus, their lifestyles, particularly their, um, their sexual expression or their sexual identity or pursuits, displays, notice how Jude is very pointed here, he says, 
they actually deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. That's an important statement. That should help us to just kind of frame the uh, conversation from the beginning that as it relates to understanding our rebellion from God, probably one of the most potent places our rebellion is played out is in our sexuality. And perhaps maybe the most contested or potent way in which our submission to Jesus is played out is in our sexuality, right? Our sexual expression, sexual identity. So here's what's going on. Here's the trouble, right? You said, John, you said you're going to say what the trouble is. Here it is. Who, they are perverting the grace of God into sensuality. Sensuality simply means sexuality without limits, or maybe better, sexuality beyond limits, right? That might be a better way to understand it. Sensuality simply means sexuality without limits. So they're perverting the grace of God into sexuality, sexual expression, sexual identity without limits. Uh, This also is not a strange idea. Uh, Paul had to address this. Remember in Romans chapter 6, verse 1, he writes it like this. He's like, hey guys, look, you're not getting grace. Like, you're not understanding what what I'm talking about here. Like, what are we going to say then? Do we just continue in sin because grace is going to abound? In other words, maybe they were perverting the idea of grace in the sense that, well, look, God's forgiving. He's already shown us forgiveness. At the end of the day, he's going to forgive us anyway. He knows we're imperfect. Like, just... Look, enjoy life, follow your desires, do what your desires encourage you to do, pull you to do. At the end of the day, God will forgive that. And so Jude and Paul together are saying, oh, look, that is a perversion of God's grace. That's a possible understanding. I think there's maybe one more thing that might be going on, which we would, we would, this would be very relevant for us today. And it would be more like this, perverting God's grace in this way. If he's given us a limits as an act of grace, right, a gift, it would be a counter narrative that would say, Yeah, but if God was really loving, would he place limits on your sexuality? I mean, if if, if that's so core to who you are and is a source of such great joy, if God really shows grace to people and is really loving, would would he actually restrict your sexual expression? Would he hold that gift back from you? And that's kind of the age old question, right? If we go all the way back to Eve, did, did God really say that? Would God really say, would God really limit your sexuality? So to be very clear, that's the counter narrative. Like this is the trouble. You have, you, there are two views, right? One view would be God in his grace gives limits to our sexuality as a, as a kind expression of love. In other words, he makes a home for us and he says, the, the best and most beautiful human joy and flourishing will be expressed and experienced within these limits for sexuality and sexual identity. On the other hand, what, what uh, these jokers are teaching would be that, no, God in his grace would not place limits on your sexuality because it is the source of so much joy he would, in his kindness, say, whatever desire you feel in your heart, you go explore and fulfill and actualize and experiment and enjoy. That would be God's grace. I kind of think that's the trouble that Jude is addressing, the counter-narrative. And so he writes, verse 3, you know, remember we talked about this last week, I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation wanted to rehearse the gospel with you, but now I've got to appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Uh, when he says contend for the faith, he's not 
contend for your personal individual faith in Jesus, though that would be a biblical idea found other places. Here he's saying, look, you have people in your church who are saying God hasn't placed any limits on human sexuality, sexual identity, sexual expression. That is in direct contradiction to the message of all of uh, God's word. It's counter to his character. You have to contend with that. You can't sit silently by while professed followers of Jesus uh, speak these kind of statements about human sexuality uh, and sexual expression and sexual identity. Um, notice, though, Jude says contend. He doesn't say be contentious. So let's just keep in mind, God as our Father has certain house rules for his family. We could rattle a bunch off. We're supposed to be a gentle people. We're not supposed to be a quarrelsome people. In fact, Christians who are quarrelsome are automatically disqualified from serving as pastors uh, so if you follow any online pastors or podcasters or discernment people who are just always arguing, they are disqualified from serving in Jesus' church. If they stir up dissension and contention in Jesus' family, uh, stop listening to them. It's an evil impulse, and they're disqualified from shepherding God's people. Okay, So not quarrelsome, not jerks, not in your face, humble, gracious, gentle, kind, winsome, loving, having the hard conversations, but not being contentious. Anybody really good at that? Like, are you the kind of person that can have a hard conversation with somebody, ask them really good questions, draw them out, and at the end, they're like, man, this was such a beautiful, life-giving conversation. Thanks for saying hard things to me. I felt like you were hugging me the whole time. Can we hug right now? Can we hug? Would that be okay? Has anybody ever had to go down like that? Uh. I don't like conflict. I generally go the other direction. I don't like to seek out contending. Um, uh, Jude's calling us to that work, guys. And so for most of us, it calls us to an uncomfortable place. Um, and to that end, you guys know that John Holmes, is our deacon of apologetics, has spun up a series of classes. The whole aim, the whole pursuit in those classes is that we would grow not only in our confidence, but that we would kind of develop those competencies to have the hard conversations in kind and winsome ways, uh, so that people feel like they're being hugged while we're saying hard things and we, right, we, yeah. So the next one is September 22nd. You should, you should attend that class. It'd be good. All right, so contend, and here's the trouble. So we got the trouble, right? Two narratives on sexuality. God places limits as a gift, or man, as a gift, God would never place limits on our, our sexuality. So now let's turn our attention to the three types, right? We see three types from verses five to seven. And before we go through them uh, individually, let me, let me show them to you. Um, if you guys could pull up my little chart for the common threads in the types. All right. They get a little strange, so let's focus on what is clear and not strange. For each three type, there are common threads running through. The first thread is each type deals with an overstepping of limits or boundaries that God has given for the good and flourishing of his people. But each type is going to look at that boundary and step over it. Okay, So each type has an overstepping. Each type has to do with sexuality. Sometimes people like will look at this passage like, eh, it's not really clear that Jude's talking about sexual expression or sexual identity or sexuality. No, it's actually explicitly clear that's what he's talking about in his vocabulary, but also in the examples that he's using to support what he's talking about. The third common theme is this, consequences and condemnation. For each type, we see either, and in some cases both, you see that the choice to overstep the boundaries that God has given us in kindness for our flourishing 
will always result in destruction, darkness, or death. Self-destruction, we could say it that way, like without exception, okay? So we'll see people in the Exodus. So we've got Exodus, angels, and cities. Sounds like a Dan Brown, Tom Hanks movie. That's angels and demons, right? So we got Exodus, the people of the Exodus, the angels, and the, and, uh, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. I, I'll bring this up later. I just want to show you one digression that's really important. Notice kind of the compelling, we'll see this when we read. There's an embracing of disbelief. There's a leaving of a dwelling, and there's a pursuit of desire. You can feel that digression because you've lived it. You disbelieve God is good. You disbelieve the kindness or the goodness of the boundaries, the limits he's placed on you for your sexuality. You leave that home that he built for you, believing you'll find better somewhere else. So you step aside. You pursue the desire. And how did that pursuit leave you feeling? Dead inside. One step closer to darkness, one step further away from light. Not made whole, self-destructed, right? All right, so let's look at these types. Here's the first one. In verse 5, he says, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. So they disbelieved God's goodness and faithfulness on their journey. Jude's not the only one who talks about it. It's, it's uh, actually described a little more explicitly in Corinthians. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 10, 6. He says, look, these things with the people in the Exodus, they took place as an example for us that we would not desire. There's that important word desire again, evil as they did. Do not be idolaters. Man, I just, another key word. Idolatry for us is elevating sexual desire over God's clear revelation for our lives. Idolatry is when what I desire sexually becomes more important than what my father has said to me through his word as it relates to my sexual identity and expression. Don't be idolaters of some of them were, as it was written, the people sat, look, these were like Americans. They sat down to eat and drink and they rose up to play, right? There's our culture right there, baby. People sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And he says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. God let them experience the consequences of their rebellion immediately. Probably fewer of us would sin sexually if our consequences were experienced immediately like theirs were. Okay, first example. You have an overstepping. They, their overstepping was they stopped believing God was good, faithful, that his way was life-giving, flourishing. So they step out, right? They pursue desire, sexual expression beyond the limits God gave them. And what did they meet? Self-destruction. Second example is the angels. A little bit more obscure. Probably most of you knew that first reference. This one, maybe not so much off, right off the bat. Verse 6, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. What is he talking about there? So he's referencing Genesis 6, which goes like this. This is right before Moses, right before God judged through the flood. It says, when man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them. The sons of God. Now, there's, the, there's what people don't agree on. Who are the sons of God there? It's a good question. Jude seems to think the sons of God are angels. Some kind of, they're God's messengers. They're, they're angels. They're angels, right? Um, 
Jude, lots of people share Jude's perspective uh, to include Enoch, who, remember, it's not a canonical book of the Bible, but it was a, a book in Jewish tradition that was given a lot of weight, okay, a lot of weight. So we should give it the same kind of weight. Uh, Enoch had the same view that these sons of gods were angels. Uh, go ahead into the next one. Here's a quote from Enoch 6.2. You won't find that in your Bible, but Google has the free PDF version for you. You should, you should read it. Enoch describes it this way, the angels, the children of the heaven saw, right, these women, and lusted after them, and, and so the story unfolds that they pursue, and they express themselves sexually with these attractive young women. So again, in Jude's second example, we have, look at the language here, uh, the, they didn't stay within their own, so they didn't stay at home, they didn't stay in the life-giving place of flourishing that God had given to them. What's the verb? Rather, they, what did they do? They left their proper dwelling. They left home. They left the limits that God had given them for their good, and they follow their desire. And then what happens? They're now kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Real-time consequences in this life and condemnation in the life to come. Notice the pattern continues to build. Now, the third and final type Verse 7, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. This is a reference, again, to writing in Genesis. Let me just read that so that's in your mind, and I'll say a few things about it as well. Genesis 19, this is just a sad and ugly and barbaric story from start to finish, okay? This is just ugly. I'm just going to tell you before I read it. There's nothing, it's just a horrible story. The people of the city, right, who'd gathered around Lot's house, called the Lot, they said, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. We want to have, have sex with them. That's, that's what the word know very often means uh, in the Bible. So Lot goes outside, closes his door, and says, man, I'm, I'm begging you. My brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have, see, I, I told you this is just horrible all the way around. Lot is no hero in, in this story. Behold, I have two daughters who have, they've not had, they're virgins, they haven't had any sex. You, you, get, to, you get to break them in, it'll be fantastic. Um, let me bring them out to you. you. You do to them, you do whatever you want. You express yourself no limits sexually. You kind of had to wonder where, where Lot's heart was in life, man. He's a daddy. Just don't do anything to these guys, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. That's kind of a head nod. Some of you are familiar to like Middle Eastern hospitality culture. Sacred. If somebody becomes your guest, you have a sacred responsibility for their welfare. So that's, what he's, that's what's going on here. He's protecting them, but he's willing to sacrifice his own, his own daughters. So this example builds on the last example. Um, in, in that, we see in the example with angels, right? Like in the, in, in the first example, there's sexual immorality, but it, it seems um, like expected sexual immorality. The second example is like, wow, that's, that's even further outside the realm of God's intent. Like these are angelic beings now stepping beyond the other for sexual identity and sexual expression. So Jude's continuing to work in that direction now. And his focus is on homosexual expression in the Sodom and Gomorrah uh, narrative as another example of other. You saw that 
You saw that in the text where uh, he says they pursued unnatural desire. Their sexual immorality was described as unnatural desire. Now, some people, some Christians don't like when the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is used as a piece of the conversation about sexuality and homosexuality, and they will turn to the prophets. Uh, It's in Ezekiel, I believe, where Ezekiel calls out Sodom and Gomorrah, and he names several sins, but kind of surprisingly, sexual sin is absence. It's like uh, lack of hospitality, a lack of justice. Uh, There are several sins mentioned there. Uh, Further, I've heard people say, this is not about homosexuality. Uh, In fact, it's just like the example with the angels. Angels wanted sex with women, humans, and now in this story, human men want sex with angelic men, right? So the otherness is pursuing sex with angels, not, but that's a, that, I've heard people argue this, but I just need you to know, not only is it really obscure, that's not Jude's approach. It's also not um, the approach taken in Genesis. Jude is very clear. The account in Genesis is very clear. The other is in reference to homosexual expression that was taking on in this story. And so if you're wondering what I'm saying or what God's word is saying, uh, to go along with our big idea, if God has placed limits on our sexual identity and sexual expression for our good and for our flourishing, uh, this type would place homosexual identity as identity and sexual, homosexual activity beyond the limits of God's good and kind design for his sons and daughters. So let's kind of summarize it this way. Uh, look, at these, look at these words here on the screen. This is the digression that Jude wants us to see, right? At the root of all of our sexual brokenness and sexual rebellion is first an embracing of disbelief. Disbelieving that there is a God. Disbelieving that God has a design for my sexuality. Disbelieving that he's good. That might be most common for those of us who are Christians, right? We believe there's a God. We believe he's got a design. We believe his design is for our good, but then when we're really tempted, our hearts, we we disbelieve the goodness and we believe he's withholding good from me. And so then we step, right? We leave the home that he's created for us. We pursue pursue whatever desire is in our hearts. We seek that fulfillment, but rather than being met with life, we find destruction, darkness, and death. Now, Jude just illustrates this with one more story, and it's super obscure, and I'm going to read it and then take my microphone off and give it to the most person who's most confident that they can explain what's going on here. You ready? He says, in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. All right, before we get, before we get to the kind of the strange story that he tells there, what he says is, in like manner, so in the same way, these people who are suggesting to you that either there are no limits on my sexuality or that God in his kindness uh, will forgive anything um, or that that it doesn't really matter what I do to press beyond the limits. God's, God's full of grace and it will be uh, forgiven. It's, it's no problem. He says, people who rely on their dreams defile the flesh and reject authority. And guys, this is the crux of the matter. This, comes down, this is where it comes down to truth. Whose truth? My truth, your truth, God's truth. 
Um, because if there is a God and he has created you and he has given you a design for your sexuality and he is true and he owns truth and he establishes truth, um, this is what we receive. So in, 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 order to, in order to press on beyond those limits, the choice you have to make is the choice to reject the authority of the God who has created you. And so that begs the question, are you free to establish your own truth? Is what's true for me just true for, for me, but you have the freedom in life to form your own truth around your sexual identity and your sexual expression? I say that just to show you that nothing has changed in thousands of years. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new. Jude says, in like manner, these people, here's the key right here, relying on their dreams. What does that mean? Relying on their dreams, they reject authority. We can understand that two ways. Relying on their dreams would, would, would sound like this. Well, I understand the Bible says this, and I understand the Old Testament always taught this, but God spoke to me in my dreams, or God has spoken to me, period, and he's told me that that's not the way that it is anymore. Or that, yes, while he did restrict sexuality in the past, he's no longer restricting sexual expression any longer. Or he told me that these were just cultural expressions, just cultural expressions in the New Testament, but we're 2,000 years removed from that. Um, it's no longer the case. God has spoken to me. Or, but we can understand dreams more broadly than that. It's not just the sense that God has given me a dream. The idea of dreams would include desires. So for example, um, it's taking the desire that I feel and giving it more weight or more authority than the words that God has already spoken to me. It's saying, if God were really loving, why would he allow me to feel this desire but limit its expression? Or if God created me this way and I feel this way sexually, why would he withhold sexual expression for me if he's loving and if he's gracious? So he's saying, in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams, they defile the flesh. They reject authority, and they blaspheme the glorious ones. Now there's where I don't know what's going on. Blaspheme the glorious ones. But here's the example that he gives, and we can work on it together. Verse 9. When the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses. You got it? Somebody want this one? He did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So what do we have going on? Moses dies. Michael, the archangel, and Satan are arguing over what should happen with Moses. Satan's like, yo, Moses was evil. He killed a guy in Egypt. He, he was a bad leader. Uh, his people rebel. Like, Moses deserves condemnation. Michael, the archangel, is defending Moses based on God's grace. But what does Jude say? In all of that conversation... Michael did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, entrusting it to God. Who wants it? Okay. So, yeah. okay. Great, let's do it. And 
Hold on, hold on, hold on. You thought I was joking. And this is not rehearsed or scripted, right? Go. All right, I got the Amplified Bible on my phone, and there's a note here that says, in Jewish tradition, Michael claimed to be Moses' teacher and was present when God put Moses to death. Jude's point is that if the archangel Michael had such respect for Satan's power, then mere humans are extremely foolish to insult or show disrespect to angelic beings. Mm. Dude, you teed this up perfectly, because that's what I think's going on. That's great. That's fantastic. No, 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 you think I'm playing now. But I'm glad you read that, because what, what's, what's being blasphemed? Because right? we read the next verse, and it says, uh, it says these people, they're blaspheming. Unlike Michael, they're blaspheming all that they don't understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So what are they blaspheming? Um, Jewish tradition, and uh, there's biblical support for this, would see angels as like mediators or guardians of God's word. So if they have mediated and guarded this beautiful picture of human sexuality and sexual identity, and uh, these teachers are saying, no, sexuality without limits, that would be a direct offense or affront or a blaspheming of the work that the angels have done to mediate and guard as they reject God's word and instead follow their own desires and sexual identity, sexual expression. That would fit exactly the note that you just read from that Bible. That's good. I like this teamwork approach. Let's do this next week. This works out. The other way that we might understand it is simply they're blaspheming God, right? They are rejecting God's good creative design for their sexuality and just saying basically, no, I'm going to follow my own desire. It's that simple. That would be blaspheming God's creator and authority of our lives. Jude says, like unreasoning animals, they're destroyed by what they understand instinctively. We got to be careful there. That's not Paul calling image bearers of God unreasoning animals. He's not saying they are animals. He's saying they share something in common. The commonality is a rejection, a rejection of God's authority and just instinctively following whatever I desire. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to follow that desire out to the fields because if I do, I find life. But what's the key word that we need to see in verse 10? Destroyed. You, 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 are, you are free to live a life of pursuing your desire. You, you can reject God's good, beautiful home that he's built for you and your sexual identity and expression. You can walk away from that. You can follow every desire that you have in your heart. You just have to know what God the Father has already spoken to you kindly through his word. If that's the choice that you make, you will not find self-discovery. You will find self-destruction. So let's sit with that word destroy for a moment. Um, because we all face incredible temptation when it comes to our sexuality. And that the core of that temptation is a disbelief that God is good. He's withholding something good for me. And a little taste right now will not really be that big a deal. Guys, we need to tattoo that word, destruction, destroy, self-destruction, someplace we see it. Porn is not pleasure. Porn is poison. You cannot participate in even a few seconds of porn consumption without ingesting a debilitating poison into your soul. You can't do it. It's not possible. It is poison.
the masturbation that so often accompanies pornographic consumption is not innocent self-expression. You don't find an awakening of your soul there. You find a warping of your soul. Masturbation at its core is a, is a, is a self-love. It's beyond the limits of God's intended design for our sexuality. And let me, let me show you what I mean. This could be its own sermon, so let me distill it down into one very imperfect definition. And we could probably tweak this a little bit, but I think it's accurate to um, uh, the full teaching of God's word. And I think God's design could be communicated something like, like this, that our sexual enjoyment, our sexual fulfillment, satisfaction, expression, all of these things, identity, would be expressed within marriage between one man and one woman. Here's what's key, right? As an act of self-giving love. So sexual expression at its core is so beautiful because by God's design, it has the well-being and the joy and the flourishing of another person at the center. And that other person is the person that you are in a covenant of marriage with for a lifetime. That's why it's so beautiful. And that's why our cultural sexual ethic is by nature self-destructive because it removes God and it removes the other from the core and it places you at the center. That is a clear recipe for self-destruction and darkness, not light. Okay, porn is poison. Masturbation is not an awakening. It's a warping of your soul and of God's good design. Don't be jealous of your friends and peers who have multiple sex partners. They're not living. They're dying. With every sexual encounter, they take one step further from God's home, God's good creative design. They, st they take one step further from light and into darkness. They take one step away from peace and into chaos. Guys, there are real, physical, emotional, psychological, and spiritual consequences that occur when you choose to have multiple sexual partners in life, as if God almost knew what he was doing when he built the home for our sexual identity and sexual expression. Any step away from God's good design for us is a step towards darkness and death. Consequences in this lifetime, condemnation in the life to come. All right. Let's bring it into real time. We covered the text. There's a lot more that I want to say, but it's just that problem every week. So I'm going to move on from those things, and I want to speak to kind of five uh, categories of people as we wrap up. And you're like, five? That is a second sermon. <laughs> and we'll, we'll keep it kind of brief. Um, they all start with the same letter. I want to talk to the sexually wounded. I want to talk to the sexually um, waiting. I want to talk to the sexually wondering and wandering. I want to talk to the sexually way gone or wasted. And I want it, this one doesn't fit at all, but it starts with a W and it's the only thing I can come up with. I want to talk to those of you who sat here and thought to yourself, well, see, W. <laughs> this is a sermon for somebody else and not for me. You need to hear. All right, the sexually wounded. We have a lot of people in our family who are sexually wounded. There are a lot of people in this room who have a profound sexual woundedness. 
Sexual woundedness occurs any time an image bearer of God steps beyond the boundaries that he has given us in his kindness for our good, disbelieves, follows desire, steps beyond and acts sexually on another person against their will, or even sometimes with their will, but it's still a clear violation, sexual woundedness occurs. One of my favorite authors, Sam Alberry, says, you know, one of the reasons we know sexuality is so sacred and matters so much to God is because all we have to do is look at the trauma that occurs when somebody is violated sexually. If you're here this morning and you're sexually wounded, Jesus is your rescuing king, and he sees you. He sees your pain. But the, the gospel is even more beautiful than that. Jesus, this is kind of mind-blowing, because nobody else in this room can truly empathize with you in the pain or the disgrace that you feel. Jesus, so we would be kind of disingenuous if we said that to you. Jesus, on the other hand, as God, chooses to share in the suffering that you have experienced. He empathizes. He knows your pain. He knows your disgrace. He knows how you feel. And he took all of that to the cross and to the grave, and his resurrection stands as an exclamation point that he is committed, just as life came from death, he is working to bring beauty from your brokenness and beauty from your ashes. If you are sexually wounded, you need to know that Jesus is a kind and gentle, restoring Savior. He sees you, and he's your rescuer. And this is your home. We want you here. To the sexually waiting, I forgot to mention this in the first service. You know what I was most afraid of as a teenage boy? I actively, you're going to, I actively prayed that Jesus would not return until I was married and had had sex with a woman. I was horrified that Jesus would return because I was waiting, baby. Please wait, Jesus. I'll wait if you wait. <laughs> Guys, look, if you're over here, if you're a teenager and you're waiting, if you are young and in the military and surrounded by sexually active peers and you are waiting, man, I'm so proud of you and my hat's off to you. And Jesus sees you in your waiting. It's beautiful. Waiting is beautiful. You're at home. You're not missing out. Don't ever believe that. You're not missing out. You're right where you need to be. Man, you turn to Hebrews 11, faith is equated with waiting right there. In your waiting, you are living a beautiful life of faith in Jesus, believing that the sacrifice you're making now by choosing not to exercise your sexuality like the rest of your friends are will actually uh, sow life and be life-giving down the road. You're saying no now. You're sacrificing now because you believe God is telling you about the truth. He's trustworthy, and you're choosing to believe him. And I commend you for that. But I just want to say two things. Sex is beautiful, but it's not ultimate. Don't put too much weight in it. Don't idolize virginity or getting married and only marrying a virgin. And don't idolize the idea that if you wait, sex will be perfect when you get married. Every healthy married couple has to work hard 
at a healthy sex life that is good for the other. Some of the most important work that you will do to benefit your marriage now is to continue to trust God by waiting. The more waiting you do now, the more benefit it will have in your marriage in the future. The less waiting you do now, the harder you will need to work with your spouse, even in God's restoration and redemption, to have a healthy, self-giving, others-flourishing, mutually beneficial life of sex in your marriage. There's more that we could say about that. The sexually waiting. The sexually weak. Uh, guys, Jesus didn't pull any punches. He said, if your eye tempts you, pluck it out. If, you're, if, you're sin, if your hand causes you to sin, chop it off. Now, he didn't literally mean rip out your eye or chop off your hand. Thankfully, the point he was making is, just like we've seen demonstrated in this passage, sexual sin has very real and serious consequences. And, in, and a life lived beyond the boundaries of God's good design ends in, a, in, a, in a, an eternity of condemnation. For those of you who are sexually weak, while you're single especially, this is your season to cultivate submission to Jesus and to wage war. Um, porn consumption before your marriage will wreak havoc in the marriage you don't have yet. Make war now. Sex and marriage does not alleviate the temptation for pornography. So don't bide your time with porn use. Pornography before marriage will find this weird twist in your marriage and you will be tempted even further and more frequently and the battle will be even harder to fight there. Fight it now. Kill it now. Kill it now. Uh, so wage war. The oh, man. So we got sexually wounded, Jesus sees you, he's your savior. The sexually waiting, Jesus sees you, he's enough. Did you know that Jesus lived? See, you're not expressing your sexuality, you're like, I'm not fully human. I'm missing out. Yet Jesus lived as a fully matured, healthy man who was celibate for his entire life. So what, Jesus wasn't fully human? Didn't fully express himself? You're not missing out. Jesus is your savior. To the sexually weak, Jesus is your savior and your rescuing king, he sees you. To the sexually wandering and wondering. Guys, this is gonna be incre increasingly true in our sermon. And I'm sure, look, there are people in this room right now who are same-sex attracted. There are people in this room right now who have struggled with gender dysphoria. Does my, uh, do, do, do I fit the body that I'm in, right? Gender dysphoria. Um, hmm. And you might be wondering, man, John, like, it doesn't sound like I have a home here. It doesn't sound like Jesus has a place for me and his, his family. What are, you, what are you saying to me? Well, let's frame this conversation real quick uh, just by looking at the full narrative of Scripture. God creates, everything is perfect, beautiful design. All of our desires are in order. The rebellion happens, the fall happens. We all live under the curse of sin. Now, every one of us in this room have disordered and disoriented desires. Everyone. For some of you, those disordered desires are expressed in a heterosexual way. For others of you, that desire is expressed in a same-sex attracted way. For others of you, you wrestle with the binaries. You don't feel completely one or the other. Do I transition? Do I stay the same? For 
pictures of you, it's just the gender dysphoria, like I said, maybe the same-sex attraction. And John, it sounds like what you're saying is, Jesus is not my rescuing king, and there is no place for me in the kingdom, and this is not my church home. Friends, if you're same-sex attracted, if you wrestle with gender dysphoria, if you wrestle with the binaries, Jesus sees you, and he is your rescuing king. And the good news of the gospel is, Jesus does not call you to anything that he does not call heterosexual persons. You know what he calls you to? Same thing that he calls every other heterosexual person in this room. You deny yourself, you take up your cross, and you follow me. He's your savior, and he sees you. Jesus calls every one of us, no matter how we feel, to submit our sexual desires, even the way we feel about our identities, to his kind kingly rule, and to live at home in the space he has created for our identity and our expression. And you can faithfully follow Jesus as a same-sex attracted person by submitting your identity and your expression to Jesus as your kind kingly ruler in the same way that any heterosexually inclined person can do. Now, I do need to say, denying yourself and submitting to Jesus will always come at great cost to you. Now, depending on how you feel sexually, that cost may be higher for some of you than it is for others, to be completely fair and honest, okay? But the reality is, at the end of the day, the cost of following Jesus with our sexuality is far, far, far less than the cost we will pay if we disbelieve and we leave our home and we pursue our desires. Okay? All right. So the sexually wandering and wondering Jesus sees you and he is your rescuing king and he calls you to live in glad submission to him. <sighs> Was that five yet? Because I should be done. It's time to be done. It's not, though, is it? What am I at, like three? Man. Yeah. Sexually wasted, far from home, way gone. I got bad news for you. If you have lived beyond God's limits with your sexuality, identity, or expression, if, you're, if you have months, years, days of porn consumption behind you, multiple sex partners you've transitioned, detransitioned, multiple, all the things, as it's, it's, there's nothing you can do. You are too far gone. You are way, 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 way beyond the limits of God's good design for your life. You have offended a holy God. You have met with death and darkness and destruction. You have warped your soul, and there is nothing you can do to reconcile yourself to the God who created you and there is nothing you can do to heal your sexual brokenness. And there is nothing that you can do to bring yourself home. And Jesus sees you. And he's your rescuing king. And he descended heaven for you. He loves you. And he left the home that was created for him. 
and he went to the dark places that you live in in your soul. And he took all of that darkness and all of that brokenness and all of that shame and he took it to the cross and he took all of the consequences and all of the condemnation. He takes your guilt and he gives you his innocence and he puts you up on his shoulders and he brings you back home to the Father and he restores your soul and he heals your sexual brokenness and he redeems everything that you thought you had broken irreparably and he makes all things new and the resurrection stands as the exclamation point that Jesus brings life out of death and light out of darkness for anyone who calls on him for rescue. So if you are sexually broken, wasted, and way gone, the gospel is incredibly good news for you. Jesus sees you, and he is your rescuing king, and he is the one who can bring you back home to the Father and restore your soul. And your sexuality can be beautiful again. All right, that's four. Last one. Yeah, I guess six. For those of you who sat here and thought, well, this is for somebody else. You sat here and said, well, this is for the L or the G or the B or the T or the Q. You're missing the most important letter. The sermon's for you. Jesus said, people who are well don't need a physician, but I've come for the sick. I'm just telling you right now, if you feel like you're sexually well, Jesus is not your rescuing king. There's no sexually well person in this world. We are all sexually disordered. We are all sexually disoriented. Look, you're like, John, I'm heterosexual. I'm married. I have kids. Great. You physically live at home in God's design for you. But you can be incredibly sexually immoral and broken in your mind even while your body's at home. You can be sexually broken and immoral in your heart. Your soul can be so warped as a virgin, as somebody who's only ever had sex with one partner. There's nobody sexually well in this world. And if your posture is this is a sermon for the others, and this is not for me, you just need to hear Jesus is not yet your rescuing king. But he will be when you humble yourself and recognize your need for a savior. Let's pray. Father, thank you for seeing us. Thank you that your home is big enough to include all persons, regardless of their feelings. Thank you that you are a rescuing king. Father, for the sexually wounded, the broken, the wandering, the wondering, the way gone and the wasted, and for the well, who think they're well. Father, please rescue us, restore us, and give us grace this morning. Amen.